Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have on the show Louisa Lim. She's the author of Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. It's published by Riverhead Books in April 2022, so it is hot off the press. I'd like to briefly introduce our guest. Louisa Lim is an award-winning journalist who reported from China for a decade for NPR and the BBC. She's also a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne and co-host on another excellent podcast, which I recommend you check out. It is the Little Red Podcast. And in fact, this is the second of Louisa's books that I've had the pleasure of reading. Her previous book was The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited. And so now, without further ado, Louisa Lim, welcome to New Books in Law. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's great to have you here. So just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong? Well, I um, grew up in Hong Kong. My parents moved to Hong Kong when I was five. And so I spent my childhood there. And then I came back as a very young reporter and covered Hong Kong's handover to China, uh, working for a local um, television station. And then I... uh, was working in China for the BBC and for NPR and I kept coming back to Hong Kong and I just you know I really I wanted to write about Hong Kong I wanted to write about the the city and its history and I also wanted to write um you know a Hong Kong book uh I was part of an anthology called Hong Kong 2020 before that was written a couple of years ago put together by Penn Hong Kong really great anthology of Hong Kong writing. And when we did a book launch for that, we did it at the FCC in Hong Kong. And there were, you know, a whole load of us sitting on the stage, some Hong Kong poets and fiction and nonfiction writers. And someone from the audience asked us this question. They said, what is the one book that I should read about Hong Kong? And we all looked at each other and no one could think of a book. And I, you know, that was really a shocking moment for me. We had all these authors on the stage and, you know, we were all looking at each other. Eventually someone said maybe Timothy Moe, Insular Possession, but that was written in the 80s. So, you know, then I started looking out, seeking out books by Hong Kong writers to read them, to find what are the Hong Kong books. And, you know, I don't believe there is the one book. I don't believe there should be. And I think now there are many books. I just wanted to add to that collection of Hong Kong books. Um, And I think you really do add to the richness of the sort of evolving literature of Hong Kong. As you say, um, it has taken some time. There aren't too many out there, but especially since 2019, a few more have been published So then I guess my follow-on question for that is you write in the prologue um, that the book became harder to write as the process went on. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I've been writing this book for many years. I started thinking about it uh, back in 2014. And, you know, I've been interviewing people sort of obsessively in the way that journalists do over the years. Um, and often going back to the same people. So I had this great big archive of sound because of course I'm a radio journalist as well. And then after the national security legislation passed in 2020, um, things became a lot harder. You know, the red lines 
were kind of everywhere and nowhere. It was very hard to know where they were. Um, it became really troublesome. You know, the, we always the biggest problem is ensuring the safety of the people that you've talked to. And there was really no way to do that under the current climate. You know, the only way that I could do that was in many cases by removing names, removing details, sometimes removing whole sections. Um, so that was really quite hard. And one of the reasons that I, I really didn't want to do that was because there were so few sort of Hong Kong people in Hong Kong's history. You know, Hong Kong's history has always been written for it by um, its successive rulers and doesn't really feature many Hong Kong people. So it felt wrong to remove people's names, you know, an act of subtraction that I didn't really want to be part of, but I didn't really see much choice. Now that's really interesting. And I think a lot of the Hong Kong characters did come through in your book. And I want to, I do want to spend some time talking about some of those. But just before we dive into that, I, would, I just want to go back to um, at the opening of your book, you have, and I mean, for readers and listeners, I would say that something that really comes through in Louise's book is it's so evocative and you actually really do feel like you're in Hong Kong. So I just want to go back to in 2019 and you open the book with this really dramatic scene. So on the 1st of October and you write, I was squatting on the roof of a Hong Kong skyscraper, sun blazing on my head, sweeping sweat dripping into my eyes, painting expletive laden Chinese characters onto a protest banner eight stories high and wondering if I'd just killed my career in journalism. The air was soupy with heat and through the haze I could see a satisfying tetrascape of rooftops packed so tight they seem to interlock. I come to the rooftop to interview a secret cooperative of guerrilla sign painters who specialised in producing mammoth pro-democracy banners to be slung from Hong Kong's highest peaks. But as I watched, my fingers itched to grab a paintbrush and join in. Now, I'm just wondering if I can take you back to that moment because it does sound like something almost out of a sci-fi movie but for listeners who weren't in Hong Kong at the time, it, it did actually feel a little bit like that at times. Can you tell me a bit more about that day and your transition from journalist to wanting to grab hold of the brush and sort of join in? Well, it was actually the day before China's National Day and I um, was there reporting on it and because I'd been there for, you know, quite a long time. I knew a lot of people and, and I got this phone call in the morning saying, oh, would you be interested in meeting these sign painters? And, you know, of course I couldn't say no. I was fascinated. I really wanted to know who these people were. And, you know, it was surprising they weren't who I thought they were. Um, they were, yeah, I mean, I, I promised not to say anything about them, but they they were not the type of people that I thought they were going to be at all. And um, when I went and when I was watching them, I just, yeah, you know, it was almost, you know, it was like this sort of battle of wills inside me, you know, and it was a conflict that I'd felt really acutely ever since the protests had started, you know, on the one side, a journalist, on the other side, a Hong Konger. Um, you know, it, it w and I was just finding it harder and harder to figure out what 
was ethical behavior for me um, at that moment. And, you know, traditionally, journalists are not part of movements. You know, traditionally, journalists, we've been taught in journalism school to be objective, to be outsiders, to be onlookers. And, you know, I know that's the traditional role, but in this case, I was propelled over the edge. I just started, you know, I joined in and I started painting with them. And I mean, part of it was because of my fascination with the King of Carrion, which I'm sure you'll get to. But also part of it was, um, I think, my frustration with the the constraints of journalism and, you know, particularly when at that time in Hong Kong, reading Hong Kong's press and feeling that they were not representing the mood that um, on the streets, you know, at the time there were so many people out out there, particularly I'm talking about in in June, but, you know, because the media in Hong Kong has been bought up by pro Beijing businessman and has gradually sort of self-censored itself, censored and self-censored itself, almost to the point of irrelevance. And you know, it's a it's a it's a quite a painful discussion right now because the Foreign Correspondents Club has just um, ended its human rights press awards because they don't know where those red lines are. Um, and I just yeah. It was a decision that I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even really want to write about, to be honest, because I felt that I would be attacked for it. But at the same time, you know, in order to try and write honestly, um, you know, there was no no getting out of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm not a journalist, um, but it seems in navigating the ethics of journalism you were sort of compelled to make the ethical choice, even if that's almost contradicts the sort of underlying things that are taught in journalism school. Um, and it is super interesting. Well, I think, I mean, yeah. so I was going to say, I do think in a way Ukraine has almost slightly changed the calculus because the moral <laughs> calculus is so clear in the case of Ukraine. It's so clearly an invasion into another country, um, whilst the case of Hong Kong, I think to many outsiders, it did not look that clear. But um, if you viewed it from the inside, I think it, it looked it looked different, and, and that was part of the conflict that I think many reporters inside Hong Kong felt, not just their own personal feelings towards the protest, but also. Um, those working for local media, you know, whose words when they appeared on the page may may have been somewhat changed from the words they wrote or the words they posted on social media. Mm, that's interesting um, because, I mean, I think in Hong Kong as well, the what's not necessarily apparent outside Hong Kong is the red line is shifting and has been shifting. Um, and so it's I can't imagine how difficult it would be as a journalist to navigate um, in that context. Now, I want to turn to... I mean, I think there's not yeah. one red... Sorry, Sorry I was going to say, on. there's not one red line. 
Yeah, okay. I was going to say there's not one red line. The problem with the national security law is that it's so broad and it's so vague. And then it's being used along with a whole welter of sort of colonial era sedition laws that are being brought back into use. In many cases, they haven't really been used before. And so there were red lines everywhere and they're kind of crisscrossing. You know, people talk about a red sea. Um, And that lack of clarity makes it really hard. And that's one of the reasons why the the Foreign Correspondence Club took that step, which I I think is a real mistake if your core mission is uh, protecting press freedom. To end your press freedom awards is really, you know, it's it's a really painful act of defeat. Mm. Um, And actually, that sort of, um, I just want to jump ahead, because it sort of relates to what you've just said. So in one stage of the book, later on in the section Defiance, you also quote an op-ed written by Samson Wong, and he says, what was not sensitive yesterday has been become sensitive today. Every day, everybody becomes increasingly anxious. More and more tiny things are deemed to be potentially troublesome. Can you comment on this increasing politicisation of all aspects of life in Hong Kong since 2019? Yeah, I mean, I think it's thoroughly alarming. You know, you have a whole new category of speech crimes that never existed before. Um uh, there's at least 183 people who've been charged under the national security law, and a third of those have been um, charged with speech crimes of various sorts. And um, they're, you know, things like possessing stickers with the words uh, liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our times, which is a phrase which has been found uh, by the courts to, to be... Um, uh, a violation of the national security laws, you know, that could be enough to get you in trouble. There's a case a couple of weeks ago where six people um, were taken away by the national security police for clapping in court. So it's, you know, I think that the lack of clarity breeds fear. And the fear means that people will self-censor and will not speak because they don't know when they're safe. And, you know, those sort of areas of... I, I, I just think, you know, having been in China for a decade, in a way it was much easier to navigate in China because it was always clear what was permissible and what isn't. Um, and Hong Kongers don't have that at all. There's no precedent. Um, there's no clarity. And... There's also sort of no recourse. The national security courts, the way they've set up, been set up, means there's sort of no higher powers to appeal to. Um, so it, it's it's a really terrifying in many ways. Yeah, and then I want to ask you my next question, um, and a quote from your book again. You said, "I come to Hong Kong to write about politics, yet the very act of living was sapping all my energy." It, you know, sort of what you're saying, is that why that was sapping your energy? Was it um, this sort of like difficulty of navigating um, identity and sort of law and journalist ethics and just being in Hong Kong at that time? Can you tell me more about that? Um, At that time, it wasn't so much um, those things 
that I found very exhausting at that particular time. That was actually before the protests had started. And, you know, the things that were sapping my energy were much more prosaic things to do with, you know, the lack of space, the cost of rent, the the cost of living. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, the amount... (laughs) I'm sure you do, right? Yeah. And the amount of time that uh, we had to spend commuting to get my children to a school that I could afford to send them to, you know, all those very small things uh, were just things that sort of ate ate away. Um, But, you know, all of those things are also symptomatic of Hong Kong structures that, you know, the government has worked with these tycoons to put in place these you know economic structures that make life in some ways quite um stressful and you know I will say I should say that I lead a super you know I I was living a super privileged existence you know compared to most of the population I wasn't in any financial under any financial strain and yet I felt that I was struggling. So I wonder how much harder it was for um, other people. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. And so I want to turn back to some of the um, the interesting characters of your book. And you mentioned before the King of Kowloon. So he's sort of a reoccurring theme throughout the book. He's a calligraphy graffiti master known as the King of Kowloon. Can you tell me a little bit more about him and what his story tells us about Hong Kong? So the King of Kowloon was this really famous character who, when I was growing up in Hong Kong, he just seemed to be everywhere. And, you know, everyone knew him or knew about him. He was an old man um, who had been a trash collector. His name was Zhang Zhou Choi. And he um, was, you know, many people thought, he was mentally challenged or incompetent, but he firmly believed that the peninsula of Kowloon had been stolen from his family back in the 1860s when it was given to the to Great Britain um, as the spoils of the Opium War. And he um, spent 50 years writing on Hong Kong's walls, on its lampposts, pillar boxes, flyovers, post boxes, on all the surfaces that belonged to the government. And he wrote in this sort of really distinctive, really bad Chinese calligraphy, really sort of crooked and dribbly and not beautiful at all. But he wrote his family tree and his claims to the land. And people thought he was crazy. And I was fascinated by this character. I, um, you know, his his writing, his words really spoke to me. They reminded me of my childhood. But beyond that, there's his significance really was something that fascinated me because he became kind of a local hero, you know, a cultural icon. You know, uh, poets wrote poems to him, singers sang songs to him. He starred in adverts. He played cameos in all these local films. Um, And he became, you know, Hong Kong's most valuable artist at one point, representing Hong Kong at the Venice Biennale. So I was just fascinated by him, but I was particularly fascinated by him because 
the um the themes that he was so fascinated in you know these themes of sovereignty territory loss dispossession these were all themes that are right at the heart of hong kong's um you know all of hong kong's dilemmas and problems and he was talking about them long before anybody else was um even though people thought he was mad so i just you know i just kind of followed his lead i started tracking down the people who knew him the people who'd written about him people uh the people who were friends with him and it just led me to this sort of cast of such colorful characters um it was just a way for me to follow hong kong's history and you know the people that it led me to were actually people who were also thinking about these things before other people were and writing about them before other people so in a way he was my guide i really enjoyed his story because it really um gave a human face to the stories and a way to sort of get into the narrative and also narrative and also hong kong's history and i think he sort of You've alluded to this point just now, but um, in terms of you know the themes he was exploring of sovereignty, loss, and dispossession that you mentioned, you also write about Hong Kong's conflicting historical narratives. I found this really interesting. Can you elaborate more on what these competing narratives might be and how they operate? Well, I mean, it was just so interesting to me that the narratives that I grew up with in colonial Hong Kong was so different than the Chinese narrative. Um, You know, when I was a child, uh, although we didn't actually learn anything about Hong Kong history, the kind of narrative that was implanted in us was that Hong Kong had been a barren rock before Britain's arrival, you know, a fishing village at most. And, you know, it was the British, arrival of the British that turned it into this sort of port, this great mart of trade, this international city. Um, And then the Chinese narrative uh, is that Hong Kong has always been part of China since time immemorial. And, you know, it was wrested away by by great powers behaving uh, in a fashion that humiliated China. And, I mean, you know, there are elements of truth to all these narratives, both these narratives. But uh, when I started thinking about and looking at the other histories of Hong Kong, I realized just how partial they were. And I sort of became interested in what are the other stories of Hong Kong, the ones that aren't being told. Um, And so that's kind of what I was looking for. I interviewed very early on a historian called Tim Coe, and he just said, you know, I said to him, what do you think of the sort of history books of Hong Kong? Um, and he said there are no Chinese names, no Chinese faces in Hong Kong's history books. And then I started noticing this was so true. You know, all the colonial books were just laundry lists of governors, British governors and their achievements, you know, literally no locals, no Hong Kongers named. Um, And I wanted to try and restore Hong Kong voices and Hong Kong people to, 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 to to, 
a historical record. So that was another thing that I was trying to do. And that really came through. And it was, um, you know, being in Hong Kong now, you can see so many of the streets and buildings, so many of the um, locations are still named after sort of colonial heritage. And Hong Kongers are seemingly written out of a lot of their own history. Um, One thing I did also find really interesting in your book is you wrote about Um, and you just touched on this, which is why I would like to ask you. Um, You wrote about your experience growing up in colonial Hong Kong and you have some great tales. Um, For example, you talked all about your mother's trips taking you to the graveyards, which overlook Happy Valley Racecourse. I'm wondering what we can learn about Hong Kong's colonial history through your mother's work and these visits and your experience growing up in Hong Kong. Yeah, so my mother... um is British, but she has this sort of intense interest in Hong Kong's own history. And she wrote some of the first cultural heritage guidebooks to Hong, to Hong Kong Kowloon and the New Territories. So she, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood being dragged really reluctantly around these sort of study halls and temples and looking at sacred trees and this kind of thing, you know, villages in the new walled villages in the new territories this kind of thing and I found it really dull I wasn't the slightest bit receptive to it um, I'm sorry to say (laughs) but you know (laughs) I you know I wanted to be sunbathing and buying new clothes and doing (laughs) fun stuff like everybody else but I think (laughs) (laughs) I think somewhere some of it must have sunk in Um, you know I think that kind of grounding that I got in um, Hong Kong's sort of pre-British traditions and their longevity was really useful. I mean, more than useful. Sometimes I wonder how much of it is my book and how much is my mother's. Um, And then she went on and she wrote this book about the graveyard, which is 600 pages long. It's this sort of gigantic book about Happy Valley Graveyard. And she had only been intending to write a, a little pamphlet saying where the interesting graves were, but she ended up writing a, um, it's almost like a social history of the graveyard. Um, and it was really looking at those early settlers and those who weren't elites, who were sort of policemen and sex workers and um, shopkeepers and, you know, those people who aren't really remembered by history um, and, and painting a picture of early colonial Hong Kong that way. So I think all of these, um, all of these things were really influential to my background because I, I kind of had a slightly different view of Hong Kong history than I would have had if it had only come through books. Um, it's sort of much more grounded in, um, you know, both the untold stories of, of settlement, but also those, you know, uh, more indigenous legacies, you know, those villages uh, like, you know, Camden and places where they, that have been inhabited, of, you know, for more than a thousand years. Um, none of that 
was kind of new to me when I, you know, when I started doing research, I realized, oh my God, I've been to all these places, every <laughs> single one of them. And I didn't, you know, I didn't take in that much, but I, you know, <laughs> at the time, but they were all familiar to me. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. And as you say, um, it must have sunk in because you also recount a story where you took your own children to Sham Shui Po to visit a, um, a tomb. So, uh, it's like you're you're almost doing what your mother has done with your children, but um, I'm sure it will sink in with them as well. <laughs> I've I've done the same with mine. Don't worry. Um, but it's the sort of interesting point you raise about these sort of untold stories, um, and I want to sort of bring this back because um, in sort of the next part of the book, it's called dispossession. And you describe then the voice of Hong Kongers as being the biggest omission in the story of how Hong Kong came to be handed back to China. Can you tell me about how Hong Kongers' voices were omitted in the handing back of Hong Kong to China? Yeah, so that um, whole process, um, Hong Kong was handed back after this agreement was negotiated in 1984 called the Joint Declaration. And that was negotiated between Britain and China. And Hong Kong has had no part. They weren't even part of the negotiations. Um, They didn't get to vote on it, the agreement. There was no um, referendum or anything. There was no, no mechanism for them to say whether they wanted to be handed back or not. And I was always, you know, fascinated by that story. How did that happen? You know, I thought about tracking down those people who'd been there, but then I realized that was not going to be possible because so many of them had died or were incredible, you know, really old. Um, and then I found this archive, incredible archive of interviews that had been done by Steve Chang, the political scientist who's at SOAS, and they were are being held in Oxford in a library. And they were kept confidential for 30, for 30 years from the last incident mentioned. So each of them was sort of released at a different time. Some of them, you know, quite recently and some of them a lot earlier. But um, they, you know, at the time when I first came across them, you actually had to go to the reading room in Oxford in order to read them. And so, you know, that kind of really limited <laughs> uh, access to them meant it was, you know, hard to know what was in there. And I went a couple of times and then I went and met Steve and I showed him the list of interviews and he kind of said, oh, I'm sure I interviewed some other people. You know, I remember interviewing so-and-so and so-and-so. Why is it not on the list? So I went back to the library and asked them. And they were like, oh, oh, actually, no, there were more. And so these interviews kept just appearing and appearing. And it turns out there's this incredible archive with, and the you know with all kinds of people, three governors and a lot of senior civil servants. But for the purposes of this project, um, the most interesting ones to me were with this group of people called the unofficials. So they were appointed by the British as unofficial members to the Executive Council, which is like the cabinet and the legislature, and they were really senior Hong Kongers. They were sort of bankers and lawyers and industrialists. And um, people who the British trusted and the British um, asked them to advise them about the, the drafting of the joint declaration. But, you know, 
because they had signed the Official Secrets Act, they weren't really able to publicly say what they thought. And over time, they became more and more unhappy with the way that Britain had carried out the negotiations. And they really felt like they were being sold down the river. And they were never able to say it in their lifetimes. You know, it was really hard because they'd signed this agreement. And so to sort of stumble across these interviews after, you know, some of them had died, most of them, was a sort of extraordinary discovery and really quite moving. Um, You know, some of the things that they were worried about have been the things that, you know, that the very things that have happened and the things they asked for, you know, the, these requests they made that Britain ignored, um, you know, I don't know whether it would have made a difference, but I asked Chris Patton, the last governor, whether he thought it would have made a difference had their voices been listened to at the time. And he said that he thought it might have. And, you know, I guess my point was not so much that, but just to restore their voices so that um, that Hong Kong voice is represented somewhere. And, you know, I just thought it's a much, such a different account of those negotiations when told from a Hong Kong point of view. Yeah, and I do think that comes through. In the book, you you write about sort of some of the processes in, um, of the negotiation, for example, in 1979, in Beijing, Deng Xiaoping told then-governor of Hong Kong, Macquarie McElhose, that Hong Kong was part of China and would be recovered, but Beijing would respect Hong Kong's special status and allow it to continue its capitalist system. And then there were also promises later on as part of the one country, two systems model um, that ultimately universal suffrage would be achieved, and that was put into the basic law. So can you sort of comment, like putting this all back together um, in the context of the handover and negotiation, you know, how far, how much of like Hong Kongers um, and their voice and their interests actually got represented in these documents? And then how far we've come from those, that legislation that was drafted? Um, So those documents, do you mean the the archive or do you mean the joint declaration? Um, actually the joint declaration, but also the archive in terms of how relevant it is. Mm, Okay. Um, so the joint declaration was drafted by Britain and China and Hong Kongers really had no part in it and they were really unhappy. The main advisors were really unhappy with it. You know, they said, uh, one of them said, I wasn't happy. No one was happy. But because of their status, they were kind of duty bound to sell it to the to the people of Hong Kong. That was, you know, their function really, um, as the British saw it. You know, I think for for Britain, returning Hong Kong was an act of political expediency, and they just wanted to do it as sort of quickly and cleanly as they could. And for them, these concerns that the unofficials raised really threw a spanner in the works. You know, the unofficials were saying, well, hold on a moment. You know, at various points you promised that Hong Kongers have to accept it. What's the mechanism for acceptance? Um, You know, China says that it will um, do this, this, and this. What happens if China 
doesn't respect that? You know, what are the mechanisms of compliance? Uh, will anything happen to China if it doesn't? And, you know, these were all questions that Britain did not want asked. There were also questions about British responsibility to um, BNO passport holders. So those are um, passport holders of British national overseas passports, which didn't actually afford Hong Kongers with residence residency in the UK. So, you know, these were really weighty questions of Britain's moral responsibility that it didn't want to um, really um, address. And these were being raised by Hong Kong's advisors. You know, how much impact did they have at this sort of distance? It's quite hard for me to say, but I think their lobbying, it forced the British to work a bit harder, to lobby more. I think they embarrassed the British. Um, they also had a real political symbolism, I think, really is the first, in many ways, unofficial politicians in the age before party politics, where you know they really stood up and sort of publicly voiced, even though it made them unpopular with the UK, it made them unpopular with China, but they still sort of went ahead and did it. And, you know, in many ways, there's almost a kind of Greek chorus status because so many of the things that they warned about are things that have now transpired. You know, three of them went to Beijing and met with Deng Xiaoping and the senior unofficial at the time, S.Y. Chung, um, laid out his concerns. And, you know, he said he had these major concerns um, you know, that they trusted Deng, but what happened if China changed? What happened if China moved to a more, what he called a more leftward position and didn't follow the same policies? Or what happened if Beijing was not, uh, if Hong Kong was not ruled by Hong Kongers, but ruled from Beijing? Um, you know, and he put these concerns to Deng Xiaoping and Deng Xiaoping was you know, furious with him and said, you know, it's you, you're the problem. You don't have confidence. You know, it's the problem isn't the Hong Kong people. It's you, you don't have confidence in us. And, you know, humiliated him publicly. But, you know, these are concerns that have turned out to be, you know, more than valid, sort of prophetic in a really, um, it, it, you know, in a way. And so... You know, I think the documents show that really clearly. They also show how the British, you know, I did call it an act of political expediency, and the documents show really clearly that, for example, uh, the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, she did not like the Chinese. She was quite racist. She did not trust them. She secretly, privately agreed with the unofficials that the Chinese were not to be trusted. We know that because of her own annotations on these newly released documents. And yet she was, you know, she was very sympathetic to the unofficials, yet she did not do anything that they wanted, you know, for her political expedience, political expediency and the interests of Great Britain far outweighed those of Hong Kongers. Yeah, so on the one hand, we had this sort of voiceless population who is being represented first or governed by first the British and then the Chinese. 
But then on the other hand, you know, one of the key themes that comes through in your book is this sort of unique sense of this Hong Kong identity being forged. Can you talk more about Hong Kong identity since um, the handover up until now and how it's changed and navigated through these sort of conflicting narratives narratives and political um, sort of pulls in different directions? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost like an identity that has kind of, formed um, despite all the forces militating against it you know it's it's hard to form an identity when you don't know your past your history is obscured and yet that has happened in Hong Kong Um, and it's kind of quite a complex identity as well you know it's not an ethnic identity. You don't need to be ethnically Chinese to be a Hong Konger, although most people are. You don't need to be necessarily born in Hong Kong to be a Hong Konger. You know, some of the most well-known protest leaders like Nathan Law were born in mainland China. It's really an an adherence to a set of values, you know, Hong Kong values, which are really about, um, you know, liberal democracy and cherishing and fighting for, I don't necessarily mean physically fighting, but, you know, fighting to support um, uh, freedom, you know, those freedoms. And I think it's an identity that's also, you know, been forged. For many years, it was overlapping with Chinese identity. You could be a Hong Konger and a Chinese person at the same time, and many people did business in China. They sort of crossed the border a lot. They were had a feet in both worlds, a foot in both worlds. But after the, um, you know, after the umbrella movement and subsequently the 2019 protest movement, that it, I think Hong Kong identity came more and more to sort of be formed in opposition to mainland identity because Hong Kong values really run counter to Communist Party values. Um, And so, you know, when I say Chinese, I'm talking about not ethnic Chinese, but sort of Chinese mainland Communist Party uh, values. Um, And so it's also, you know, people also talk about it as an identity of practice. And in many ways, if Hong Kong is a city of protest, that identity, that Hong Kong identity is also forged, has been forged through protest, you know, throughout the protests of 2019, it became stronger and stronger because, you know, all the slogans were about Hong Kong, about this hometown. And um, it was really kind of front and center uh, during the protests. Um, You know, now, since national security legislation has been announced, you know, there's been this huge outflow of people from Hong Kong, you know, 150,000 people have left since the end of the year. And in a way, that's also a, it's a way in which identity is being put into practice that people would rather leave Hong Kong than, you know, be forced to live in a certain way, to not have the freedom to, you know, think what they want, say what they want, um, learn what they want. So, uh, sorry, that's a really long and complex answer. (laughs) But actually, it sort of builds into one of the other themes in the book, which was that of erasure, 
you write about the erasure of history, memory, identity, as you just spoke about, and culture. Can you just tell me a little bit more about this theme in Hong Kong? Sorry, could you say that again? Oh, yes, sure. So um, one of the, this theme of identity actually feeds into another of the key themes of the book, which was that of erasure, of history, memory, identity, as you just mentioned, and also culture. So can you tell me about this theme of erasure in the Hong Kong context? So um, there was, there's a very well-known cultural theorist called Akbar Abbas, and he wrote about Hong Kong. This was in 1997 as a culture of disappearance, a culture that only appears when it's on the point of disappearance. And so I think that has been um, a prism through which many people have viewed Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, in recent years, as things have, you know, Hong Kong has always been a city that is in motion, you know, it, it, it's been a very fast moving place where, you know, buildings are built quickly, the skyline changes quickly, you know, whole cities in the new territories, you know, when I was a child would just appear, um, you know, in the 1970s. Um, so it's always been a, a city of change. But I think, you know, recently the changes that we have seen have felt much more, um, permanent and final and I mean when you talk about erasure and disappearance I'm thinking of the erasure and disappearance of things that have been at the very heart of Hong Kong identity you know things like the June the 4th vigil because of course Hong Kong is the only place on Chinese soil where that has been allowed to be publicly remembered and that's you know become a kind of duty of I think that many Hong Kongers have felt the duty to remember things that cannot be remembered over the border in China, you know, now that doesn't look like it's going to be possible anymore. You know, the disappearance of the pillar of shame, that statue um, in Hong, Hong Kong University that was also always sort of central to the way that students at the university remembered June the 4th, and that was just sort of carted off unceremoniously in the dead of night and the characters that students would paint every year on the on the road up in the university, you know, those were covered over. So that kind of really avert erasure of traditions. And I mean, you know, we also saw it in the protests as well, it, just in the way in which um, slogans were covered up and painted over all the time. And, you know, in ways which I think really drew attention to them, it, it didn't the the ways in which they were sort of sponged out really poorly or painted over with different colored paint, it often didn't hide them. It didn't make people forget them. In fact, it drew you drew your eyes to these spots, and you would start to want you know you could even figure out what was underneath. So um, there has been erasure, but I you know I that 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 and there's been a real effort to erase by the government. But I think Hong Kongers, um, you know, they will still remember. I don't think that reformatting of um, memories is as simple in Hong Kong as, um, well, I mean, it's not a simple process anywhere, but I think it's much harder in, in a place like Hong Kong. Yeah, and that's sort of um, 
despite everything else, that is somewhat a positive idea to sort of um, bring it together. Um, so now, Louisa, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, what are you working on now? I'm actually working on a podcast oh, um, about the King of Kowloon. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'll have to listen. Well, it'll come out in June. I'm doing it for the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And it's quite, I mean, it's, you know, some of the same characters as in the book are in it, but it's not the same. It's 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 le- less about Hong Kong, more about the king. Well, that sounds really, um, really fascinating. And it's a really good way to get into Hong Kong and recognize that, you know, it, it's it's people and hear their voices. So I'll definitely be looking out for that. So that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> so just to sort of finish up today, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Louisa Lim. She's the author of Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Louisa, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk to you.